everyone. Welcome to Bible Discoveries, the weekend show. On this show, we like to discuss questions that pop up as we're reading through the Bible because that is what we're doing this year. We are reading through the Bible. And we also like to discuss viewer questions that you guys send to us as well. So thank you for that if you've been sending us questions. They're really interesting. And as always, my name's Corey, if this is your first time here, and I'm here with my husband, Matlock. Hey, Matlock. Hello. We got to cover a new intro. I feel like everyone knows that I'm well, Matlock and I'm here. Well, it's just in case. It's just I in know. case there's new people How watching. How you doing? <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> okay, so our reading this week yes. is still in the Psalms. Yes, it Psalm is. Psalm 80 to Psalm 112. So we're edging ever closer to that Psalm 150, where then we'll move on to some Proverbs and more wisdom literature. Uh, yeah, so we do have questions for this area of scripture. Um, we are going to be looking at... Um, Things like Leviathan and Rahab, their identity as we... A lot of identity, actually. Right. The identity of the sons of God in Psalm 82, the identity of Leviathan and Rahab. Uh, some some good questions coming up. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I know today, last week, we didn't have a big question. We did not have a big this question. This week, we have a big question. Mm-hmm. And the big question will be, how do we tell the difference between literary devices and actuality? So what is the Bible teaching here? Is it teaching reality here, a physical reality? What's it, what's it mean there? And how do we know? And how do we know right. what it's teaching? That's How do we that's know when it's question. teaching metaphorically? Exactly. How do we know when it's not? Yes, because this does hang up a lot of people. So that's the big question today. Yeah. But besides that, Corey, we have an opening one, which is actually not Psalms, ironically. It's not Psalms. Yeah. Okay. But it's related. So <laughs> let me do a little justification here. Yeah. So when we're reading through the Psalms, there's there's a lot of questions that, that can pop up that involve other scripture verses. Right. There's not a lot of questions that are specifically from Psalms because, of course, it's poetry. It's music. Anyway, there are some. But this first question, like you said, is actually from Job. So Job 1 and 2, but it kind of pertains to some of the questions that we're going to be talking about today. So this is from Linda, and she says, in the time of Job, uh, was Satan evil then in heaven? Because we see Satan speaking with God and and in heaven. So in the time of Job, was Satan evil then in heaven? What was the job of angels? Okay. So at the time of Job, I don't think the time of the job of angels has changed. I'll stick with the first one, which pretty much if I rephrase it, it sounds like when did Satan fall? basically, because it's asking, in in the time of Job, was Satan evil in heaven then? So when did Satan fall is the gist of this question. Right. Um, and I know there's a gap theory that teaches that Satan fell in between like Genesis, like, I think, like, verses 1, verse 2. Um, either way, something like that. I, I don't subscribe to that. And, in fact, I encourage you not to subscribe to that. There's just nowhere where it's found. It's more so paradise lost. Um, either way, the, I think where Satan falls is precisely when it says he fell, which is in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, where the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. That is the first time you have an account of a a divine being tricking or manipulating humans and other creatures. So I think Satan fell at the same time that Adam and Eve fell. I think it was just a a mutual rebellion, if you you will, for lack of a better uh, way of putting it. So let me just quickly go to Genesis 3, and I'll tell you why... I think that's the case, too. Uh, And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring 
and her offspring, and you shall bruise your he- and he shall bruise your head, but you shall bruise his heel. Uh, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In the pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree and of which I commanded you, uh, you shall not eat of it. Curses of the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall be, bring, uh, shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. From out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Okay, so right there, as Adam, God's, I shouldn't have even read that whole thing, didn't really need to, but as, as God's judging uh, Adam and Eve, right before that he's judging serpent. As we know in Revelation, the serpent of old, the dragon, right? This serpent is uh, Satan. And I think what you have here, actually, is a little bit of casting down language that you have with the serpent. So I know there's a, there's a large wave of people who believe that, you know, that this is just the serpent itself. I, I, I lean towards this view that the serpent didn't so much have legs as much as it had wings, so to speak. Um, so it says, because of the, you have done this, curse your, are you above all livestock, Right? So it's like he's going down to the depths. So he's casting him down, down to the belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now, what is it that Satan does? Satan, what are we from? We're from the ground. He's eating dust. From dust we are dust we shall return. This concept that Satan is, uh, you know, he's a lion on the prowl looking for who he can devour. And he's going to and fro the earth, as it says in Job. Um, this idea that Satan's on the prowl to destroy us, to destroy humans. I think that's the language being said here. Because I think it would be weird to be like God, personally, that God would, in the first half of the sentence, be like, because you have done this, cursed you are above all livestock, to be talking about to the snake himself. That's The first half is a prophecy, uh, a, a judgment against the snake, a curse against the snake. And then the second half, where he says, I put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, that's a judgment against Satan. I think it's a little weird because... And snakes aren't human. They don't have our rational capacities. So I think this whole thing is a judgment against Satan. I think that's what it is. And um, to put that simply, so I think Satan falls here, then he makes a judgment, this is you. Like you are now, this is what you do. Uh, you shall devour man as like his, as his curse um, is the principle here. So and then obviously his offspring versus your offspring, it's kind of off topic, but as you know later, Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. And it's tying back to this idea that they're the spawns. You're the, the, the children of Satan, he calls them. So you have this idea that false teachers are like the children of Satan, the father of lies, right? Anyways, long story short, um, Satan deceives Adam and Eve uh, in Genesis 3, and then he falls. And then from that point onwards, I think there's a lot of people, commentators, who say there's a cosmic rebellion. I, I think this makes sense. Celestial rebellion against uh, against God. One of the earth, the angels fell, or whatever. However, you want to piece that together, and then there's just angels are at war. You read about this in Daniel with um with the demons and the false gods and all these things. And so there's a there's a spiritual war afoot, and we're partaking in this spiritual warfare by becoming Christian. And so the job of angels is to be messengers. Specifically, the word angels here to the second part of your question means messengers. So they're messengers of God. If we're talking about angels as like all spiritual beings, the tasks are just vary. 
Right, so Satan. Yeah, we we right. see we see varying tasks within the scripture itself. Right. So not just delivering messages, but also you mentioned in Daniel struggling against spiritual forces. When you take a look at the Gospels, we see angels coming to minister to Jesus. So in general, if you want to if you want to take it very broad stroke, you would say the job of all angels is to do the will of God. But then that is broken down. The will of God is broken down into many, many different tasks, some of which we know through scripture and some of which I'm assuming we don't know. We right. don't know yet. You know, some offer worship, some um, um, go before his throne, some, um, you know, go go with him as he travels. There's like all of these different, right. and all of these different tasks that we read about in scripture. And then Satan's role, essentially, whatever he was beforehand, specifically mm -hmm. his roles, I don't know specifically, but then when you talk about his role afterwards as the accuser, as a Satan, as someone who accuses the people of God uh, of doing evil and wants them to be, he wants to devour them, right? That's why he's accusing them. He wants them to fall. He wants them to stumble. That's what he does with Job. So he's- Yeah, a, because his his whole premise is, yes, and Job loves you, but it's not a pure love. That's right. He doesn't love you because of who you are. He loves you because of what you give him right. is the and premise. Exactly. So his job changes from whatever it was beforehand to now being an accuser of of humanity, right? He wants mm -hmm. humans to fall and perish. He, he wants the image of God to be destroyed. Um, either way, so that would be my really long, you know, roundabout answer to that question. So yes, yes, Satan had fallen by the time. Yeah. Of <laughs> yes, yeah, oh yeah, Satan did fall. That's right. That's, <laughs> right? that's yeah, that's, that's, that's right. That's ultimately, where it comes from. Okay. okay, Psalm eighty-two, Matlock, is where our next okay. question comes from. Psalm 82, is it referring to angels and like like gods, angelic beings, or is it referring to kings? Okay, let's do this. I'm going to open, I'm gonna open go It's there. pretty short. Yep. This is what I was looking for a couple weeks ago, and I was like, I can't find it. And it was using Rod's Bible. And I was like, I can't find it anywhere. It was, I thought it was Psalm 72 in my head. Psalm 82. So let's just read this, okay? Um. I'll start here at verse 1. I'm going to read it. It's only eight verses. This shouldn't be too, too long. God is taking his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Okay, and the question is, is this referring to uh, angels or gods, or is it referring to kings? And I think our, when we were doing the weekly recap, the long version, we talked about it potentially being both. I know the late Michael Heiser believes that this is just referring to divine beings in, yep. the, in the council. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's room for it because we talked about also, uh, you remember the, in Ezekiel the judgment and Isaiah the judgment, when they're judging kings, through, in Ezekiel 28, when he's judging the king of Tyre, he's actually also judging the God behind him who's doing other things as well. And behind him is kind of a weird thing to put it, but he's judging the, the spirit, king. Yeah. He's judging the spirits through the king which is a really interesting thought and, and concept to use. So he's judging both at the same time. It's not just like he's judging, um, you know, say a king here and a, and a, and a, and a the god here. He's judging the, the gods through the king's judgment. 
And so I think that's really interesting. But especially this question, I think, really helps. If we go to John 10 for a moment. Um, let's go to John 10, uh, verses 34 or 33 to 38. Let's look this up for a second. Because Jesus actually highlights this verse um, specifically. And that's the reason why I don't think we can take a complete celestial view of it. Though he is using his own logic against the Jews. So let's read this really fast and we'll keep going. Then the Jews answered him, is it not good for... Uh, is it not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Then Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming, because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Okay. So in here specifically, and I know this is where the tension comes from because some people say, well, Jesus is making it refer to, to humans and he's not talking about beings at all, uh, celestial beings at all. Specifically here though, God is using their own logic against them. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard because he's saying, you say that this means this. So you're saying that these sons of God, that you are gods, refers to you. So he's using their own biblical interpretation against them. Yeah. So I don't think that we can say that this is actually what Jesus believes. Uh, despite, do you see what I'm saying there? I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of Jesus simply saying, hey, you believe this. How can you say I'm not the son of God if it says, and you believe that you are gods? Right, and then that you that you will die like mere mortals. So, I, I think that's one thing to, to add to this. Um, but I think that it is very clearly says here, and especially in the Greek, we jump back to somebody too. God is taking his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods, Elohim. He holds judgment. Some translations will be like in the midst of the kings. Um, we'll say that, but it's actually the word Elohim. So it's like you have God is in place with the, with the Elohims. There's a divine council meeting happening and there's the God and there's lowercase g gods. I, there's not really any way to kind of look at it otherwise. Um, and then basically these gods, as I said earlier, are people are sacrificing to these gods. They're doing unjust things, doing things wickedly. So essentially the kings are, as we talked about Ezekiel earlier, the king of Tyre, worshiping these gods and God is going to judge these gods, lowercase g gods, through the kings. Yeah, and I, okay, so I, I think it's really helpful to take Old Testament context in mind here sure. when, we're, when we're discussing this concept because we tend to see things as there's a physical world and a spiritual world, and they're, they're just two different worlds. That is not how people in ancient Mesopotamia and in the ancient Near East, and even ancient Israel, as is revealed by the Psalms, saw the world. Yes, there was a physical world. Yes, there was a spiritual world, but they were very much interconnected. So, I mean, you even see in Psalm 82, they're talking about the assembly of God. They're talking about the sons of God. But then what's the last verse say? Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So there's this, this physical, this the very real physical world. The psalmist is calling for God to rise up and deliver the nations from their unjust rulers and spiritual rulers. Now, this 
really does make sense because when you take a look, for example, at the writings um, from the Assyrian Empire, the writings from the Babylonian Empire, the kings truly believed that they were sponsored, I guess sponsored would be an okay word to use, sponsored by the god of that nation. So they were, they were, they had been risen up by that god to enact that God's will on the earth. They had their own will and agency, but they were acting on behalf of that God whom they expected to aid them as the king acted on their behalf and offered them worship and service and, um, and things of that nature. So they became the, the, essentially the right arm of the God. Now this concept is also in Israel. When we're looking at the book of Psalms, we see often the psalmist referring to God and his anointed one. Well, on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus Christ, we, rec we recognize the ultimate anointed one, the, the ultimate Messiah, which was Jesus Christ. He is the final king in the Davidic line. He is the fulfillment of David, right? Of going back to uh, the promise to Abraham and then the promise to Eve that one of her descendants would rise up and crush the head of the serpent, okay? But in the immediate context of the Psalms, the anointed one is the king of Israel at that time. Most of them are Davidic Psalms. That's so referring to David. So the king and his anointed one would be David. David is even referred to as God's son at some point. So at some points in the Psalms. So there's still this idea that God was raising up a human agent in Israel to do his will. Now, this was a complex relationship because it wasn't as if the king's will was overthrown by the will of God. David still sinned willfully. That was not doing the will of God. He still had his own will. So there's this really interesting and complex relationship. Do you see where I'm going yes, here? Yes, for sure. So it's not just one or the other. We we think one or the other yes. because of the way we have ordered our reality, I think. Spiritual world, physical world, not the same thing. Right, they overlap. But in the ancient world, spiritual world, physical world, very much overlapped. Yeah. So you could talk about not only judging the king of Tyre, but judging the spirit who was empowering the king of Tyre. And they are both guilty, individually and together. Right. Because it's both of their wills that are being judged. Yes. And, it's, and it, that's the same reason why God could judge the king of Israel a little bit differently than he judged everyone else, because the king of Israel was supposed to be his anointed one yes. representing him, right? So I think that is what we see here. Yes. In Psalm 82. Yes. We see this overlapping of the spiritual reality with the physical world, which is why the psalmist can say, rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So really, all of these kings and all of these spirits, these gods, should be serving you, but they are not. They're being unjust. So now you have to go in, conquer them, and redeem all of these nations. Yes. I think ultimately that's the crux of it. I think that's the crux of it, yeah. So it's dealing with two, and that's important. All right, so I have a question for you, Corey. Let's keep sure. moving. Sure, This is related to Psalm 74 and Psalm 89. Psalm 74. What is Leviathan? What is Rahab? 
or who is Leviathan? Right. Who is Rahab? Right, right, right. Are they physical creatures, spiritual creatures, or literary devices? Go. I'm right. going to catch up to you while you, since you're there. I am looking through Psalm 74 right now and trying to find... Okay, here we go. Psalm 74 verse 13 says, It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the head of, heads of the monster in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up the springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, and yours also, the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. Right. Um, and then, do you want me to read Psalm 89 for you? Please. All right, so then here we have, we'll start in verse 9. You rule the raging of the sea when it waves, when the waves rise, when you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north, the south, you've created them. Okay, I'm going to pause there because then it gets into other questions. Okay. Okay, so here in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Bible, Leviathan and Rahab, and in some English translations, Tiamat, are used in a few different contexts, which is why it can be confusing. So in the ancient Near East, the prevailing imagery around the creation of the world, so in the pagan idea of this, that the world was created through the slain body of a chaos monster, a sea creature, sometimes referred to as Tiamat, sometimes referred to as Rahab, and even sometimes as Leviathan. So sometimes in the scripture, when the Bible is talking about these creatures, specifically when it's in relation to creation, it's the psalmist or the author saying, it wasn't a pagan god who did these things, who created the world. All power is God's. Only God can tame chaos. Only God created the world. So there's that element of it. Then in other areas of scripture, like for example, a lot of people have pointed out Job. Uh, There's times where it appears like Leviathan specifically is being put forward as an actual physical animal that once existed as well. Um, And there's also areas where Rahab is used to um, symbolically represent the nation of Egypt. So, and that's in the prophets as well. So there's a, there's several different uses here, I would say for Leviathan and Rahab. Right. So it's both figurative and real. And once again, you have this relationship because we know with Leviathan specifically, because they're all sea monsters, we know with Leviathan specifically. Uh, it says in Job that it, like when it snorts fire, lightning strikes, basically. This idea that it's like yeah. fire comes out of it. It's a fire-breathing dragon. And then here specifically it says in 74, he's got multiple heads. Yeah. He's he's multiple-headed. So um, you have this idea that you have a multi-headed dragon that breathes fire. And you have the same imagery happen in Revelation with this great dragon, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. So go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and it's, this, it's this idea of... And look, the sea is a wild place. Yes. It makes a lot of sense. There are 
great creatures already in the sea that are wild that today we find we're like what is that like we couldn't even (laughs) imagine like making that up and they're huge and they're weird and they're freaky Uh, but if the sea is anything like the earth there used to be monstrous creatures that roamed the earth right and that have gone since gone extinct and we don't see anymore so what could have been in the sea but the idea behind it is that there are creatures in the sea that are untamable by humanity. It is mysterious. Water is necessary for life, and yet it's ridiculously deadly. And it holds creatures that we cannot tame and that are very dangerous to us. So it makes sense that it represented chaos in the ancient world. And that, so when the Bible uses these figuratively, it's meaning that only God has the power to tame these wild creatures. So it's this, this imposing this very real humility onto people and giving honor and power and glory to God. Right. Using language that they understood back then. I, I think it's interesting too, because this idea of it being like a sea dragon, um, Sheol, I think we've talked about this many times, is characterized by the ocean itself, the depths of the ocean. That's the reason why in Revelation you have... Uh, there is no more sea because the sea represents Sheol, represents death itself. And God removes the sea and he tosses it out because there's no more death. So there's no more sea. So you have this relationship between the sea and and you have the dragon literally in the sea, right? Trying to destroy humans, basically, is this, a, is this principle, this multi-headed dragon. So you have this Leviathan really does reflect Satan in a lot of ways. And what I think is really interesting, too, when you think about this multi-headed dragon revelation and with this multi-headed Leviathan creature, is that um, uh, it as a parallel to Satan, because even the word Satan, the word serpent, when you actually look at the word, um, it actually isn't just, its relationship with a serpentine dragon is there. It's not just a, uh, a snake, everyday snake that you see. When Moses has his staff, specifically, it's called, the first is called, he puts it down when he, when he first sees uh, the the burning bush, and it's called a serpent. Then, when he puts it down again, with it, with the two magicians um, and, of Egypt, it's called a dragon. Then he picks it back up, right? And his dragon defeats the other dragons. Then he picks it back up, and then when uh, God says, "Do you remember that time in the same in the same chapter? Remember that time when your when your staff became a serpent against the magicians?" Um, it uses the word serpent again, snake. Like Nahas. I can't remember the, the word dragon for some reason. It's slipping my, my mind right now. But the point here is that the word serpent and dragon were used synonymously together. And you see this even with this, the seraphim, seraph, the fiery serpents, uh, the poisonous serpents. So there's a relationship between this the celestial serpentine dragons, essentially, and Satan. And I think that is the theological, typological imagery, the pictorial theology that's happening here. Is that God, and even that's why it's special, especially in Job, where you know, Satan is the one who is, you know, coming against Job, and he talks about, I have power over Leviathan. You have this imagery that God has power over this creature, over Satan himself. And um, so I would say that. What is Leviathan? Who is Leviathan? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a multifaceted answer because it actually is supposed to be a double entendre. It's not just a creature. It also reflects Satan himself uh, and stuff like that. 
and or the, the powers of darkness, Rahab, let's say, is a, 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 a lowercase g god who has fallen, and he's a demon of some kind. Um, so, but the, the other part of this question is, are they physical? And I don't see why uh, Leviathan couldn't be a physical creature that they've ramped up in the scriptures to be fire-breathing, stuff like that. Um, or they, they've spiritualized in a sense. I don't have a problem with that in principle because they're not writing. Job is specifically written as dramatic poetry. They're not writing you history for history's sake. They're not documenting the physical world. Like apparently Solomon documented the physical world. He loved animals and he studied animals. That wasn't put into the Bible. So, so the point here is that like the Bible's written in a specific theological way to make you see the world in a different way. And I think that's important. It's not seeing the world exactly how it is. The point is to make you see what's behind the scenes. What else is going on here? Yeah, and that's the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter, right? The depth of it. And there's a spiritual depth to these things. So I think that's an important thing is that the Bible doesn't want you to see the world the way you typically see the world because our hearts are hardened. It wants you to dig deeper and see what the spirit behind it is. Anyway, so that's my two cents. Are they literary devices? Yes. Are they spiritual creatures? Yes, because Satan's involved. Are they physical creatures? Yes. So it's like it's a multi yeah. answer kind of like yes to all these questions. Is it a one to one? Not always. So that's that. Okay, Corey, here's another question for you. This is, um, I don't know. Okay, this is, let's, let me start over. <laughs> one more time. Yeah, yeah. Take I was reading the question. Breath. I was like, whoo. Okay. Take a deep breath. Dominic Try writes. again. Okay. <laughs> we all got to do it sometimes. I know. No shame in it. All right, here it is. Ready? Yes. Dominic writes, does the earth shake or not? According to Psalm 68, verse 8, the earth shook. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God. But Psalm 93, verse 1 states, the world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. How can both of these be true? Hey, Dominic. Yes, both of them can definitely be true. Why and how? Because we are speaking in figurative language. And it's actually really cool when you dig down into what this is meaning. So we have to remember that the book of Psalms, they are psalms, they are songs. And songs necessarily use poetic language, right? So poetic language uses metaphors and signs and it describes reality in a way that's not quite reality, right? In a more beautiful way, in a more interesting way. That's what makes it artistic. That's what makes it beautiful. So the context of Psalm 93 that you quoted here, Psalm 93 is nice and small. So I'm going to read it all. Here we go. It's only five verses. The Lord reigns. I'm reading the NIV right now. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves, mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. So I hope you got the vibe of Psalm 93. This song was written to praise God as an eternal, all-powerful, almighty being so beyond 
a human being that we can't even compare to him. So when the Bible says, indeed, the world is established firm and secure, or in your translation, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. The idea is that as a creation of God's, as long as God wants it to, it is established, right? The last verse, your statutes, Lord, stand firm. Holiness adorns your house for endless days. The creations of God cannot be created or destroyed by humanity. This is the praise of Psalm 93. The world is established and firm. God controls it, not us. Then we flick, flick back to Psalm 68. Um, and in Psalm 68, again, this is a psalm that is calling God to move against the enemies of Israel. And then it, it, it goes back and reflects on other times in Israel's history that God has moved in a mighty way. And in verse seven, it says this, when you, God, went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth shook. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. So again, it's this idea that creation moves when God moves. So it's this poetic language being like, even the earth shakes when God moves. He gets stuff done. And this psalm is calling for, it's, it's begging God to get stuff done. The very first verse, may God arise, may his enemies be scattered, may his foes flee before him. And then here's where we know that it's poetic. It's not talking about the literal foundations of the earth, okay? May you blow them away like smoke. As wax melts before the fire, may the wicked perish before God. So right away into the metaphors that, that are very descriptive and they're beautiful. Right. You know, it, do, do the enemies literally go like smoke? No. Right. But he's saying defeat them. Well, God's defeat lying the if he's not puffing away like smoke. But <laughs> So both can be true because, first of all, they're talking about different things. Right. The earth being firm means there's nothing that we can do to destroy the earth. It is a creation of God's, and it is God's realm. He decides, right? And then the earth shaking when, God's mo when God moves is a depiction of his majesty, of his greatness. Right. So all, also evokes, like, um, evokes um, earthquakes, Right, because we know that there was a lot of earthquakes that happened, uh, a lot of earth opening up in the time period of the wilderness wandering, right. which is what this is talking about, Sinai right. and all that. So I have a point, but I think it actually factors into the big question. So I'm going to say the big question Please again, do. which is how do we tell the difference between literary devices and actuality? Um, and so when is it corresponding to something physical as opposed to just a figurative, as opposed to being figurative? Um, I think in this case specifically. How do we approach these things? I think with this question, there is, and take no offense to this, but there's a fundamental misunderstanding when reading the text. When we're reading poetry as though they're literally physical, like one-for-one -one physical um, correspondence, I think there can be, uh, you can lead to inappropriate understanding of the text. And here's Absolutely. What, and, and here's what I will say. So for instance, when, and, and, even, and even different, not just that, 
But when we say the earth shook, this is, I don't know which translation this is. Mine says the earth quaked. But the point here is that the earth shook and the earth doesn't move. That's the idea of the principle. When we think of the world, what do we think of? We typically think of black space at a little circle globe that's floating in space as revolving around the sun. This picture, this mental picture did not exist in ancient Israel. Yep. They did not think of the world in those terms at all. They did not think science. That's not what they were thinking. When they write things like the earth shook, they're thinking about their immediate context, what's right in front of them, the earth below them quaking, as like an example uh, you know, of what it is. Or like, do you see what I'm saying here? When it says yeah. the foundations of the earth, like I think we just read it. In Psalm 82, I'll pull it back up, verse 5, um, when it's talk about the foundations of the earth, let's pull it up here, the loud crinkly onion paper, slowly get, here it is, verse 5, uh, talk about the gods have neither knowledge nor understanding, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So again, when we're doing foundations of the earth, we're not talking about bedrock mm -hmm. or like the, the mantle core that's full of lava or a metal or whatever, you, whatever view you have. Or if it's, you know, we're not talking <laughs> scientifically. Of the earth. We're not talking scientifically. We're talking here. metaphorically. We're, we're talking, talking principles. Or, or just spiritually, even like the foundation, yes. the spiritual foundations of the world. Like we're talking about different things. Yes. It doesn't always have a one to one physical correspondence. Um, some things do, some things don't. Like we know this to be true though, just as people. And I think, I think that's where we do the Bible a tremendous disservice if we pretend or we teach ourselves that it is not human communication. It is right. intrinsically human communication. Inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he is speaking in a way that we can understand. He is using human communication. So if we tell ourselves that it is not this, that everything must be literally scientifically true, rather than trying to interpret the Bible as it was in intended to speak to us, we do it a great disservice. But we all inherently know that human communication involves metaphor analogy. and allegory yeah. and, and analogy. Of course. Like Malik and I are married. We've been married for nine years. So if I said... Matlock, you have my heart. No one is literally going to say, did you know that Corey got her heart surgically removed and Matlock keeps it in a jar on his bedside table? It's weird. It's weird. You don't literally have my physical heart. Yeah. Everyone knows what I mean by that. Right. Right? That, 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 that my affections are yours. Right. That my life belongs to you. Right. You know, as your spouse. And... We know this intrinsically, so we need to apply that the right. same way to the scripture. Now, some people will say that they'll use genre, for instance. Yeah. Okay, so we're into poetry. So, of course, you're not going to get anything literal. But So let's then take to, like, different examples. Let's take Genesis. Sure. Where it's saying certain things. Um, now, clearly Genesis is historical narrative, right? In the very beginning, people can debate about exactly what they're referring to in Genesis 1. I'm not going to get into it today. But the principle here is there's some certain things said that uh, God forms someone out of the dust. So some people imagine, or God removes the rib, yep. right? So um, people think of an actual surgery that's happening. God's literally surgically removing a rib, putting it to the side. And then it's, it's one of those things where it's like you don't need – it's something of that nature is happening. It's telling you Adam's side was removed to form Eve. The exact nature of how that works, 
was not specifically given for a reason because it's not about the physical correspondence exactly. It is about what is God theologically telling about himself and for us for us to know. It's about edification and it's of the soul. So it's, it's something about, it's theological. It's not just about it having a one-to-one physical response. Not always, mm-hmm. not always. And it's like, there's a case where you, if you say, you know, for example, all of Genesis is fake, that could obviously be dangerous. And there, there is physical correspondence. But the point here is the idea of one-to-one. Mm-hmm. Everything that's said, it, like, they're not writing, let's again, like scientists, like historians today, where they're capturing every single detail we talked about last week was Absalom's biography. Then I talked about every single detail so that you know all the ins and outs, yep. right? Right. It's not doing that. It's creating a, a pattern and a way of looking at the world that it wants you to see things differently. So but inherently, it has to condense and telescope language and use language in a way that's not precisely physical so it makes you look beyond the physical into the spiritual so that's kind of what's happening and yeah. and if something's sacrificed in that process if the if the physical one to one correspondence of oh it wasn't it was actually scientifically done in this way and he had a, you know he had a palate and he you know he removed the rib with uh with it, it, that doesn't matter because it has nothing to do with, yeah. with the theology at this point. And look, I think that most of most of figuring out whether something is a literary device, so whether it's meant to be taken metaphorically or whether it's meant to be taken historically, I think most of that is actually pretty intuitive. Yes. Um, for us, for as like ninety nine percent of the time, yeah. most of it is intuitive. That's right. There is something to be said for taking a look at ancient genres, though, and like just just learning about how. And, and and luckily, there's a lot of Bible study tools out there now. A lot of introductions to biblical books, um, you know, can can help us understand what the ancient genres were because there are a little bit of differences. What we expect out of a modern history book is not what would have been expected out of an ancient history book. Now, they're both recording history. So the differences at the end of the day for overall biblical interpretation on, on a basic level most of it is intuitive, but can be helped out by taking, I really do think, can be helped out by taking a look massively at um, at ancient cultures and, and definitely at ancient genres well, as well, I, which I, is why we're here. And even if, you, even if you don't have, like, for example, some of the early church fathers and just in church history, they didn't have access to all this ancient literature, let's mm-hmm. say. Um, I think just... Even being rational enough to be like, look, this is how I see things, but I am aware that someone else might see it differently, that might have a more accurate depiction. I think that is helpful as well. And that's the thing. God doesn't give us 100% knowledge. Of all things. all things. Yeah. Even of of the scripture. That's right. Not one of us has, is the authority on on it. That is not to say, because I can hear some people being like, oh. That is not to say that we cannot know the truth about God and that there's all sorts of wiggle room for all sorts of weird theologies. Yeah. Not what I mean. Right. Uh, we still have to order ourselves by the truths that we find in the scripture. And there are definite limitations on interpretation. Thank God. Otherwise, Christianity wouldn't be a thing. Right. It would be so open and so progressive that it would become meaningless, right? But that that's not the case. There are definite boundaries assigned by, assigned by scripture. But right. there's definitely room for interesting conversations to have there is in some of these areas and i will say this too that you have i don't there's some things that can be a literary device where it doesn't affect theology at all like the the, the really important primary aspects of our faith yeah like it won't affect jesus christ um 
uh, you know, his doctor, the Trinity, the incarnation, won't affect anything of those of the, the more important stuff in which it's open dialogue and we discuss it. Because I know there's some people who will be like, um, you don't, uh, for instance, you don't believe Jonah uh, was eaten by a fish. No, I do believe that Jonah actually was eaten by a fish. Some people don't believe, but it's like, okay, whatever your opinion is, this doesn't have to be, um, like, this doesn't mean you're not Christian, that you're right. a false teacher at this point. You might be wrestling with something that's that's wrong, but it's like, that's one thing. But it's like, so how you would tell it, it's okay, how do I know that this is probably true? Well, Jesus says that Nineveh, who all repented, uh, will stand up in condemnation against this generation. So in other words, the story of Jonah is true. So now you have to wrestle with that. So the right. point here is that like, um, it's not like all literary devices are, that are used are always bad, or if someone sees them, that it's somehow intimates or indicates that they're a false teacher. I, I think we can go too far. People just do. If you don't believe Leviathan is a real creature, some people say you're a false teacher. Right. But it's like, but we know it's dramatic poetry. So you know that you have to be careful to, to stretch those lines, being like every, anytime the Bible uses allegory or imagery, it's somehow evil. And, and it's not just removed, removed for, the, for poetry itself. Sometimes it's like, literally, it's, it speaks a certain way. Uh, so I don't think there is, I, don't, I can't give a list of criteria to say, here's how you can tell the difference here, 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 here. I think it's all con contextual. You yeah. read the context. It's based off of right, And you can kind of see it. Anyways, but that's my big answer to the big question. <laughs> all right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up for this week. What do you think? What do you think about all these things? Pop down your comments and your questions in the comment section down below. We love reading through it and responding when we have a second. But until next time, happy reading and happy studying. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.